0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Geisel Library. We are thrilled to be hosting the new writing series here. Um, I'm so excited to hear Patrick and Kazem read, and I hope you all are too. Um, just a, a couple quick housekeeping notes. Um, if you do need to read, the, uh, if you need to leave the reading before it's over, um, please use the back exit um, so that you don't disturb the reading up here. Um, there are bathrooms and a water fountain out there as well. Um, please turn off your cell phones and uh, after the reading, we'll have a Q&A, and if you have a question, please wait for the mic to reach you so that we can pick you up on our recording. <laughs> um, we are recording this for the Archive for New Poetry, which is super exciting. Um, And speaking of the Archive for New Poetry, all of these readings in the New Writing Series are available um, through the Roger Catalog, through the library, as well as linked on the Literature Department website. So if you're interested in hearing some of our past readers, or if you want to re-listen to a reading that you've been to, um, please uh, go ahead and click on those links. Um, And I'm going to bring up Brandon Sombt.
1: Thank you, thank you, Nina. Thank you, everyone. So excited uh, to see you all here—a big crowd tonight. Thrilled uh, to have Kazuma Ali and Patrick Coleman here with us this evening and reading for us. We're really excited. Thrilled to uh, have such great readers for the kickoff to our spring quarter um, schedule. We've got the schedule up here. Uh, I can scroll down. We're excited about tonight, and we're also looking forward to. A couple of events coming up next week, next Wednesday, Gabrielle Civil, uh, a, a, a writer and performance artist, will be here, here in the Geisel Library in the Seuss Room again at 5 p.m. It's gonna be a great event, so please come out for that. And then looking forward to uh, Tommy Pico, amazing poet, Um, going to be here in the loft, actually, the loft in the Price Center. Um, And that's going to be a little later show. Doors open at 6.30 and then uh, the readings get started at 7 o'clock. So please come out for these uh, upcoming events. We're super thrilled. We're super excited. Um, Also, uh, please, as you can recognize, this schedule is up um, on our uh, website. So please check us out there. Um, But also check us out on Facebook. Like us. Follow us there. Um, We're are super thrilled uh, to have you all here as a community, um, both in, in person and then also online. So thanks so much. Um, I'm going to introduce Patrick Coleman. Uh, we'll hear Patrick read. And then uh, uh, Valentina is going to be introducing Kazim Ali. Uh, after that, we'll have a short Q&A, as Nina mentioned, uh, a chance to have a conversation with uh, both our writers this evening. also want to let you know that both our writers have books for sale and you can purchase them directly from them after the event and uh, they're excited to talk to you, meet you, and, and possibly sign your book. So please keep that in mind as well. Patrick Coleman's Fire Season is a book of prose poems. Coleman tells us that they were composed over two years, 2012 to 2014, on his hour-long commute back and forth from where he lives in Ramona uh, to where he worked at that time as a curator for the San Diego Museum of Art, from which many of the books, uh, here's the book here, which, from which many of the books included artworks uh, can be found. The poems were dictated on these drives spoken into a digital recorder, which he later transcribed. Car poems, car meditations, car talk. These poems record what is passing outside the car's windows, grasslands, wild horses, conifers, vanity plates on a passing jaguar, and the helicopters working to put out the fires with large drinks of water from the cattle pond. In many ways, one starts to see the frame of the car window as visually echoing the prose passage. The poems, too, address starting a family, raising a child, digging a garden bed and helping a neighbor harvest his olive trees. Thus the poems are filled with dailiness, charting the processes and habits of the everyday while also meditating and reflecting on that existence. Indeed, at the heart of these poems are the tensions between change and routine, We see this tension actually in the title, right? Fire is dynamic change, even destruction, as we saw this week tragically in France. Seasons are about return and about what is constant. Reading Coleman's poems, I'm reminded of the French philosopher Gaston Bachelard and his book, Psychoanalysis of Fire. In that book, Bachelard meditates on fire's complexities and its elemental importance to our own imagination. He writes, If all that changes slowly may be explained by life, all that changes quickly is explained by fire. Fire is the ultra-living ultra element. It is intimate and it is universal. It lives in our heart It lives in the sky. It rises from the depths and the substance and offers itself with the warmth of love. Or it can go back down into the substance and hide there, latent and pent up like hate and vengeance. Among all phenomena, it is really the only one to which there can be so definitely attributed the opposing values of good and evil. It shines in paradise. It burns in hell. It is gentleness and torture. It is cookery and it is apocalypse. It is between these latter poles, the mundane and the extraordinary, that fire season crafts its marvelous poems. There's always a fire somewhere, Coleman tells us, and we spend our days passing out the distances between there and now. Fire season won the 2015 Berkshire Prize and was published by Tupelo Press. Coleman's first novel, The Churchgoer, is coming out this summer from Harper Perennial. He earned an MFA from Indiana University and a BA from the UC, uh, UC Irvine. He is currently the assistant director of the Arthur C. Clark Center for uh, Human Imagination here on UC San Diego's campus, and he lives, as I said earlier, in Ramona, California with his wife and two daughters and we are so thrilled to have him here and reading for us this evening. Please uh, help me in joining, uh, uh, welcoming uh, Patrick Coleman.
2: Hello, thank you. Um, Thank you, Brandon, for that uh, amazing introduction. I'm afraid everything that I have to say is going to be a letdown Um, after (laughs) that. and, uh, and thank you to, to Nina and the um, writing program for inviting me to come and speak um, and, and, and read these poems with you. And thank all of you for coming to, talk to, uh, come to, to listen to poems. Um, as Brandon mentioned, I uh, work at a center on campus called the Clark Center, and uh, so it's really delightful to get to take off my administrator mask for a little while and, uh, and be here among people who uh, just enjoy Uh, writing. Um, So I want to just start by reading a couple poems that just help uh, set the stage of what this book um, is about. So the first poem here is called Fire Season. In the grasslands they put an airport. There's always a good reason. The grasses are dry, golden around the coyotes late summer. On the drive to work, exhausted, I see two large white planes, heavy-bottomed, boat-like, pass low. On the tails and fuselage are wide orange stripes. They're going to drop water on the wildfires, the wildfires that rained ash over 50 miles under the hood of my car, the hood of my car that was up to keep rats from chewing the wires, the wires that they've chewed anyways. My wife saw the fire start from where she nursed on the couch. The lightning of a summer thunderstorm that came in from the desert struck the mountain range, struck the mountain two ranges over. This is Southern California. We have a baby. There's always a fire somewhere, and we spend our days pacing out the distances between there and now. Deer in the break. Maybe there's music. Maybe there's a movie at low volume. Put away the dinner dishes, the meal we ate staggered. My hip is kinked and painful. I don't know why. Think about work. Think about no rest from work. Weariness. This is what I want. But still, unfocused desires squeeze through the seams. The vague dissatisfaction that is always mine. Like a hustling retriever, I'm a dog who needs usefulness. Without it, high-strung, hungry, my bearish mind staggers through several campsites, becomes a hummingbird too blighted by possibility to stop and drink, and scatters into light and bone and anything else that fails to form a body. Accept the braces like a field-bound ox. That's goodness, that's the good. Reason is the baby in the bassinet, the fear every time I pass her. It stops me like a deer in the brake, her breathing. And as Brandon mentioned, the, these poems um, came about in in what I thought was a relatively unusual way, but then the more I am out here talking about the book, the more I find people who are also doing this maybe overtly or secretly um, in that uh, these were written completely out loud in the car driving the hour from Ramona um, out in the, the kind of San Diego backcountry down to the San Diego Museum of Art. And um, uh, I found that there's something really kind of freeing in that process um, of uh, not having the page to look back to. Um, and. I came to it purely out of desperation. Um, so as the, those first poems helped to kind of situate us. You know, I had a, a new baby at home, a new career, um, trying to figure out how to make ends meet in Southern California, and was really interested in, um, in how people survive being an artist when you have a day job, um, which is something that I think is maybe just as hard when you're a student, but um, certainly continues to be hard as you need to you know, pay bills and everything else. Um, and so the only time I had was that commute time. Um, and I started off by trying to memorize poems on the drive, which was really um, helpful. And then at a certain point, I started to reverse the process. Um, and uh, there's a very distinct difference um, between the poems I wrote on the way to work and the ones I wrote on the way home from work. Uh, and uh, so I'll, I'll read one of the poems I wrote uh, on the way Uh, to work Um, this is reflecting on something that had happened the day before it's another poem uh, titled Fire Fire Season breath on the water molecules touching molecules making friction making surfaces shift making things happen the helicopter drinks from the cattle pond settled among a long trajectory of blonde grasslands kindling Blades displace air, which displaces water, animating its surfaces and the light it reflects. A plume of smoke from out past the airport. We're going to the park and thinking about frustration, and now we're heading up the hill for a better vantage, thinking wind direction, temperature and humidity, potential timelines, roads it will leap, what unsurvivable losses we will pack into the trunk. The cat, of course, and now pictures of you. An endless number, it seems, but no, it's finite, and they're stored on hard drives. The beginning of your life and the tone of those first days is ready to be reconjured by a magnet skimming a hair's breadth over a cycling plastic circle, a push and pull of sympathetic and unsympathetic invisible fields Outputting a line-by-line facsimile of your face, mine, your mother's, hospital scrubs, and the nauseous awe that confirms the unknowable drop of each life into itself and then out again. The traffic is stopped at the highway. People are out of their cars, watching the diving planes and helicopters. Whose homes? What lives? And such strangeness in this one. To stand later in a checkout line and look across the store over crates of dry goods. To see my wife, arms folded before a rotating display of potato chips that twirls and twirls and to know without seeing your happiness at having discovered this wheeling and what it has to do with your hand. Now when I Uh, Had to read because I promised my daughter I would read it because she really enjoys that it ends with potato chips (laughs) Um, Another thing that uh, was on my mind during these drives was uh, was art and painting and sculpture, so I was spending nine hours a day in the vaults at the San Diego Museum of Art doing research working with objects Um, and there's this uh, kind of, to me, interesting little quirk of museums, which is the very basic information that you see on a label next to a painting, um, you know, the artist's name, uh, medium, date, things like that, is called a tombstone, and uh, which always really bothered me. Um, And then occasionally, if, you know, every third or fourth object, you might get 70 words or 100 words to try to describe what people are looking at and to give them a little bit of extra context which was always, a, it's, a, it's a writing challenge. You know, What are you going to choose from the 2,000 words you could say about a given object? Um, and even then, I always really chafed against um, you know, the, the kind of art historical, factual, um, authoritative tone that you have to adopt in a context like that. Um, and that's part of why I was thinking in these kind of short prose, um, prose pieces. And, uh, and so here's one that kind of comes out of that that museum thinking uh, called Inaccurate Art History. Before the sunrise in the sky Agnes Pelton made, we saw a crow cross the face of the moon. I don't ask what these signs mean anymore. Like her, I grew up under these kinds of skies, like you will too. Their habitual coming and going make them like nothing, but there's something to me now. Agnes Pelton was from Cathedral City. She must have gone away, too. How else would she have been moved by these desert colors enough to spend her life remaking them? Do you smell the sage, or has it already faded to backdrop for more novel sensations? Symbols and ideas can only take you so far. Pelton painted the sky because she had found it again, because it had not been hers to see for a time And then it was once more. She painted so as not to lose it all over again. Except that isn't right. Pelton worked in Cathedral City, but wasn't from there. I misremembered. So what does that mean? I accept at times that ideas are stronger than truth. As much as I accept that one day you'll need to leave this place to return. Death may be the same. Under these desert lights, we fill ourselves with longing for a place without existence, so familiar and so faint." One of the quirks of composing out loud in the car is you can't Google anything, so you get it wrong. Um, And I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to try to keep that in there. Uh, There's also a lot of things that you write that end with um, a lot of profanity and uh, cursing at other drivers. Most of those didn't make it in, with, with one exception. Uh, no, actually, two exceptions, sorry. Uh, but I won't read them because they fill me with too much shame. Um, but they're in the book. <laughs> uh, so they're there if you want to see them, but uh, I can't say them. Uh, so uh, this is a, uh, another poem uh, called On Ice. This girl can make a tile floor an ice skating rink, and I see a rock and say rock, 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 rock. One of us has magic and the other a stutter, a neurotic hitch of finding realness as most basic in simple things. But the little girl sliding is all vector and joy and earthbound toe loops. She doesn't have direction, but is one like the river like the river, like the river in all seasons but deep winter when it becomes ice and a memorial to motion, like a headstone, like a rock. It's called Lita and. Lita and a swan made of glass the size and sheen of a thumbnail it lived for years in the soil of a pot at the base of a trailing vine and had traveled that way both ways across the country with a clay raccoon and a pewter cat it was the cat the living one that knocked the pot to the ground the first time all was fine I found the swan next to the bookcase near the 80-year-old editions of Jane Eyre and The Wizard of Oz, those books that belonged to so many girlhoods, even those of boys. The second time the wings broke from the tiny gla- uh, the second time the wings broke from the tiny glass swan. It was our anniversary. I told you and you cried and fed the baby. Your grandmother, long dead, gave the swan to you in your girlhood the same grandmother who shared those books of hers our daughter and grew fu- our daughter grew fussy the way she does these days and began pointing at everything she wanted which was everything string lamp sumac leaves puzzle what she wanted wouldn't stay still so i couldn't satisfy her and she cried Love is dropping into an abyss edged with a hundred jutting branches and choosing instead to hold to the circle of daylight above, the image that grows smaller and smaller as you fall. Moon, dime, bead, star, pinprick, memory. How could I have known the swan was one such fixed point in your sky? Asking, paying attention, remembering. You had told me before. And then why don't I end with just uh, these two paired fire season poems that close the book. Two fires burn, transmuting sagebrush and oak wood into smoke and ash and other floating bodies that rose to appear from this vantage like two towers. On the same morning, a blue line tells us what my wife's body has already suggested, that a new life is knitting itself together. New life. New life isn't right. Like fate or simple deterministic causality, nothing new is under the skin, only one life careening into another, each simultaneously devouring its twin and giving something different a chance to begin. As two fires become six, the winds scrape my sinuses raw, and irritability replaces the joy of news. The numerical odds of randomness dwindle and the ash columns point toward arson, a psychopath with a carton of cigarettes flicking butts out the window along the highway. Multiply, multiply. It's so easy for a man to spread his seed and the children that will rise up there and the terrain they'll leave to smolder. Home fires turn to wildfires, become home fires again. The smoke towers with or without a flame, and the stems and branches stem and branch, even in drought, even in death, whatever the fuck that means. Sometimes later, wildflowers will blaze on the hillsides, unbelievably, before the taller plants rekindle and leaf, make some goddamn shade. Relief. Fire season. The stripes are red, not orange. We discover this one Sunday morning at the airport. The cows graze just beyond the runway, no fence between. I tell you about the planes about the tubes running to them like mamas feeding their babies, filling their bellies with water that they'll carry over the tinderbox landscape and use to extinguish these occasional temporary eruptions into fire. But the stripes on the plain that I saw from great distance another morning two years ago when you were newborn appeared orange to my eye and mind. Maybe every thought's a mistake, Maybe fire is perpetual, ever present, and suckling grass, snow blooming coyote bush, dapple throwing oak leaves in the treetops, any kind of verdure and days like these with you who points at the steel albatrosses and says, Water in their bellies, water in their bellies, is an instant of peace in a horizon of burning. Maybe today is the event of the season, the temporary tent. Erected over the collapsible amphitheater There are limits to what language can do Limits limits to how perception bends and then know Let me applaud while the show unfolds Let you enjoy as many encores as these performers' bodies can will out Let the crew waiting in the wings to tear this whole production down Lean into their cigarettes And let improbably long columns of ash Cling to the filters If they rush this stage Let me have the strength To hold them back As long as my heart will last The lion leaps through this ring of fire For your wonder The lion is stationary And the fire leaps Let's watch them do it again Thank you very much
3: I'm Valentina um, uh, I have to warn you, i am a little bit nervous because my mom is here, and it never it never gets easier in front of moms, right so let's see how this goes <laughs> okay, so on August tenth two thousand seventeen, I was in my apartment in Bogota, scrolling mindlessly on my phone until I decided after much thoughtlessness to click on something, I linked to Granta Magazine, a poem entitled Relinquish. In that poem that later I posted on my Facebook page, I found one of the lines that my brain has refused to forget. I did not give up my desire to have bedroom eyes and Medusa hair. I know why I haven't forget, forget it, because I remember all the things I want to be. I didn't pay attention to the author, and I forgot about the poem, but not about the line. Years later, here I am, introducing the glorious author of that poem. Ali is a writer, a yoga teacher, a researcher, and, as I am about to prove, an exceptional cartographer. Born in the United Kingdom to Muslim parents of Indian, Iranian, and Egyptian descent, Kazim Ali has written several collections of poetry, experimentations on genre queer prose, and translated Marguerite Dura and Ananda Devi. In 2003, Ali co-founded Nightbook Books and served as the press publisher until 2007. And now, after teaching at Overlin College and at the University of Southern Maine, he's a literature and writing professor here at UCSC. In his poetics, I found an acute interrogation about the sacred, and more than an interrogation, a reformulation of what we consider the sacred is. I used to consider the sacred was the religious sacred. In my case, the tradition of the cathedral sacred, the saint sacred, the icon signifier. Through Casimali's poetics, I found the sacred is the medium from which we articulate what cannot be named, language. Both surbe- surbe- sur- subversive and devoted, his poetics, I think, are in search of the divinity in our breath, of the first moment we were possessed once and for all by our spirits. But it is also through the sacred that Casimali takes us to honor our identities and personal traditions, especially if our identities and traditions are second class In this empire populated by wonderful and not-so-wonderful poets, climate change deniers an airport official looking looking for us to understand the concept of legal alien with naturality. The sacred is what gives name name to our territories, say doubt, fear, ecstasy, redemption. The the territoriality in in Casimali's poetics is one that serves the physical place, not that is the physical place. In Bright Felon, Autobiography of City and Cities, the speaker says, Underneath the city of Barcelona, the ruins of the Roman city of Borsino are still being excavated and preserved. Under any city, other cities exist. Under anybody, other bodies. What signifies is not Barcelona or Borsino, but the bodies, always the bodies. In Inquisition, the poet asks without a question, do strangers make you human? Territories are for journeys, and journeys are filled with strangers. The rest are checkpoints. Still, there is only so much one can say in an introduction, so perhaps I should give this one some sort of circular closure. In an online interview in 2016, Ali states, poets just live with failure because no poem realizes itself. No poem goes all all that very far in the world, except maybe one or two, and even those only go a certain way, even at risk of contradicting the poet. I'd say that his poetry once went to a phone in in one neighborhood in Bogota, challenging that notion of very far in the world, which is to say the notion of territory. I'd like a simile to redesign, although erase would be a better word, the world's borders again. In his poetry, I found that the geographical boundaries we have nowadays were made by somebody who perhaps wasn't suitable for the job. That is, somebody who wasn't a poet. In the work of Kasim Ali, we found the credentials of an exceptional cartographer. But while the presidents hear my advice, I'm going to leave you with the proof of his power in this fragment of my favorite poem, The Earthquake Days. I can't give you an answer right now Because I'm late for my resurrection The one where I step into my angel offices And fuck the sun senseless That eclipse last week because of me You're welcome And then he finishes You owe me this witness I owe you the fire Please welcome Casimoli
4: Thank you so much for that um, introduction. I'm just, is it okay if I turn that off now? We got Tommy Pico is very beautiful and (laughs) check. (laughs) Oh, he's back. Uh, This is the poem Relinquish. (laughs) I did climb up that mountain and wash my hair with snow Hmm? Ready? I did climb up that mountain and wash my hair with snow I did not leave my regrets there Wedged between sagebrush and schist Before I left the house I did put the limp celery in a glass of water I did not strip naked when I went into the mountain lake. I did go in so quickly, my heart clenched up. I could not unclench it afterwards, not even when seized by my old vertigo as the funicular car dipped and it seemed we were plummeting straight into the rocks. Not the first time I fell from height. I did one time slip on a bar as I was reaching up and fell six feet flat on my back. If I closed my eyes tight, I can still summon up the light of that morning, spiking out the back of my head. For a minute, I did think I was dead. And then for two more, I thought, I am alive, but I forget what that means. Stumbled like a ghost through a building whose edges seemed to quiver, same as the funicular cables bearing us now creepily down, Elliot climbed up with us but hiked back down alone he did not want to get into that steel sky-stabbed car I can't soar I haven't learned very much in my life I've just become a more choreographed disaster aren't I supposed to know something now nah bra. says the mountain with that classic stony expression <laughs> I did learn to play cards with my cousins when I was very young. I did not ever let them win. I did finally toughen up become beast-like though not unpleasant i did not give up my desire to have bedroom eyes and medusa hair i did eat the celery stalks when i came back a little sun dazed a little cloud proud i did not drink enough water and so i spent the rest of the evening trying to speak in tongues still lake shocked i did try to invent an excuse to stay i did not steal june snow to bring back down through my hands it though my hands itched for it coldness and scratches On my body reminded me I am no animal. A bell rings somewhere within neither church nor alarm klaxon. I did unfold the overhead bars of the sky so fully unseen and clamber across the night hand over hand on starry rungs. I do not know what prayer may allow me to return to a place that teaches death so I do now risk my wind-tossed fate on one last chancy gambit. To the final clause of bedrock, I stake no mortal claim. Um, so I thought I would read a different kinds of um, from different kinds of books because I couldn't decide when I was going to read you. And so this is the opening of a story called "The Photograph," and it takes place in a museum. And if you can tell me, I mean, if you can guess what the exhibit is, they're looking at an exhibit of photographs. If you can guess what the who the artist, the photographer, the, whose pictures they're looking at, I will um, maybe give you a free book. <laughs> so there's three characters in this story. Um, Benny, uh, uh, Colin is the guy who really wants to go to this exhibit and he's looking at the pictures the whole time. So it's like, fiction in which not much happens um, so Colin is looking at a picture the whole time his friend Benny has been dragged along to the gallery he's not very interested so he's kind of wandering around and then there's this other guy Simon who they actually don't know he's just sitting in the gallery himself with his own business so this is the photograph and there's three the each each character narrates a section so Benny is the narrator of this section Colin is staring into the photograph as if it was moving It's a man, his body lying back in bed, his one arm flung behind his head, his chest open, while the other, while with the other he holds a cigarette to his mouth. The sheets are rumpled. Someone has just gotten out of bed, leaving him there in the lazy afternoon. He smokes. When I visit a new city, and I've been in a lot of them, I always want to do two things first, even before unpacking, even before calling the people that I'm supposed to be visiting. I want to walk in the streets of the city aimlessly, without purpose, and with no intended destination, but eventually I want to look at art. And Paris is a good city for that. I don't know anything about art, I'll tell you, and that may be why I want to look at it. I'm starting in the wrong place. Let me start instead like this. It is always cold in Paris in November, but it is not the cold I mind. It is cold enough to have to wear a jacket and a scarf, remind yourself you still have to take care of yourself, still have to keep yourself warm, remind yourself you are alive. When it's warm, you forget that a body is a vulnerable thing, that it gets older, can sicken, can disappear, and die. I wait for a minute, but Colin isn't paying any attention to me, his eyes narrow as he looks. A photograph is only a moment, written in light as the case may be, not a digital image captured and broadcast, but a chemical process framed by the eye, not the machine, and the light written in water and solution. Maybe that's what captivates Colin. He stands there, almost on his tiptoes, looking at the photograph. I turn from him and wander into the next gallery where seven or eight people sit, hunched against the wall, big pads in their laps, scratching intently, peering at the giant canvases on the opposite wall. It's all naked angels and Christians, nothing much interesting. But I want to look at the art lovers, look at them while they see something transcendent. You're transcendent, I whisper under my breath to the guy closest to me, a kid with messy hair and big shoulders, gritting his teeth and staring at the painting. I turn to look at what he is looking at, three women, no, two women and one very feminine dude, reaching up to Christ's feet. They've got a nail through them. That's John, you know, the Apostle John. He's, yeah, he's always depicted unbearded and, and uh effeminate, let's say. Flicking a look over my shoulder, I see Colin is still staring into that photograph, pierced. That's the look on Colin's face. He's pierced by what? Fear, longing, lust? I don't really come to art galleries to look at paintings. I come to art galleries to look at the people who look at paintings and how they look at them. Some people drift through looking here and there, never at anything for more than half a minute. He looks up at me, the boy drawing. I don't look back. I mean, excuse me, I look back. I don't look away. What are you doing, he asks me. Same thing as you. He tips the pad toward me. I see the figures are drawn, but only an outline. He's not studying detail, but composition. Okay, I say, so it's not the same thing as you. (laughs) What then? He pushes his hair back, but it only makes it look messier. I'm trying to remember you the way you are. Take a photograph, he says, indifferently, turning back to study the painting. I crouch down next to him. That's not the same thing. Why? He doesn't take his eyes off the painting he's sketching. Because it just reproduces. The mind isn't in it. The body isn't in it. He looks at me for a minute, puts his pad to one side, and then rolls up the sleeves of his army green jacket and turns his forearms up to show me. On his left forearm, extending from the inner elbow to the wrist, is a word written in Greek. On the right forearm, another word. Are you Greek, I ask him. I'm from Kansas. He gestures, <laughs> he gestures with the left arm, eros. And, I ask, pointing at the right, psyche. I wait. The mind and the body, he says. If that's what you're interested in, you know they aren't in a photograph, I say. I take his hand, the one he was sketching with. They're in the hands and on the paper. Who's your friend, he asks me, gesturing with his chin in the direction of Colin, but he doesn't take his hand out of my hand. Just a friend. I'm in a class, you know, I figured so I shouldn't be talking. You're distracting me, he said, taking his pad across his knees again. Do you like it? He smiles and holds his pen above the leg of a seraph. I make to get up and go back to Colin. Maybe we can find a bar near here and have something to drink against the chill. The artist puts his hand on my knee before I can rise. You can kiss me now. I lean over and peck him on the cheek. He shrugs a little but starts sketching. Hardly what I was expecting, Hey, he says, before I've even taken a few steps back toward Colin, what do you think the moral of the story of Eros and Psyche is? Uh Uh-oh. Tell the truth or make something up? I don't even know who they are, I call over my shoulder. At least tell me your name, he says. Benny, I call back without stopping. Colin is still looking at the photograph. What is in it, I wonder again. Are you Eros? I ask Colin silently as I approach him, looking at his face in concentration or psyche. I know photographs are literally created by the chemical reaction of light against darkness and then developed in a solution, but I don't remember the formula anymore. It is one of the many things, like the story of Eros and Psyche, that I learned in school and then forgot. Colin. His face... Can't see it really Light coming down from the window behind him He's all eyes and mouth It's not that which makes him beautiful Nor his arm flung casually across the sheet He looks away at someone standing out of the field of the camera's vision It's me Or I want it to be me I look at the date I would have only been 11 years old when this picture was taken, but if it could have been me, I would have wanted it to be me. He is smoking a cigarette and he doesn't care that he is being looked at, or maybe he is so used to being looked at that it's nothing. But it's nothing his—it's the nothing in his look that makes me want to fill him with everything I carried in my hands here, a strangeness, a loneliness, and a love for that loneliness. Why should I belong to anyone when I don't belong to any place? I think they go hand in hand, the place and the people in it. The photographs in a place tell you something about the people in it, but not the pictures of that place. And this photograph of a face that is disappearing, a man that is disappearing. When I first saw this photograph, it was on a computer screen, and I couldn't even imagine it, how big it was, or even that the man in the photograph was real, It was flesh, and blood. This picture was taken 25 years ago. He'll be twice the age now than he appears in the photograph. It is grotesque what happens to our body, what we do to ourselves. Is that the crime of a photograph? Is that why we say it is taken? Simon. He leaves walking back to his friend. I roll my sleeves back down, what was I thinking? I wasn't thinking, that's Eros. Now I'm thinking, that's Psyche. And he only looks smart, hanging around art galleries, saying all the right things about paintings versus photographs, but he doesn't even know who Eros and Psyche are. Dumb, and dumber than dumb, he can't even read Greek letters. Even fraternity boys can read Greek letters. (laughs) And how hard are Eros and Psyche anyhow? Still, he had been looking in the right directions. He did want to kiss me, Eros. (laughs) Then why didn't he? Psyche. Because his friend is right over there. His cute friend, his cute, weird friend who seems stuck in place in front of that photograph. I'll take a look at it on my way out of here. The paper in front of me is just outlines. We're learning how to create bodies in space, measure perspective, their distance from one another. The slightest space between two bodies can hold incredible energy, I remember reading, erotic energy and psychic energy. I want to know, how do you measure that? There is erotic energy between his eye and the photograph he's looking into. I shift so I can look better. And who was it that said, dumb, is more beautiful because it's emptier and it makes space for you to pour yourself into. Now I'm like Benny, I think, looking at the people looking at the art instead of at the art. The Story goes on, but I will um, stop reading to you at that moment. And I'll just uh, close my reading with a little poem so we can have both poetry and prose. Um, And this is a new poem from my, um, I don't know what it is, if it's a new manuscript or if it's just a bunch of poems. We'll see what happens. Uh, It's great to be here. You know, this is my first quarter here at UCK, University of California, Kumeyaay. Um, And it reminds me, of course, that uh, you know, I'm teaching class on the border right now, and so my students are here. And it reminds me, um, actually, truly, we're not actually in a borderlands here. We're in a region that has been a you know historical nation for many tens of thousands of years, and the border that cuts through it is quite recent compared to how long people lived here and did what they did here. Uh, this is, I'll close with this short poem. It's called "Pulse." To the sharp, to the sharp. To the sharp report in the dark, the season comes home. Long tongue sound between hand and arm, between mouth and flesh. Hold this moment river still. What if it was my life to return after years to the same province of danger? An old town you know like the handle, the bump stock, the trigger. I want to return to the boat that bore me from the far shore decades ago. What if I lived in those languages I forgot, the places I left that I want to return to? Were we seen, where we spoken, were all the wolves baying, met at the edge of the bright darkness of rain? Time cannot fulfill its promise to splinter, return, or slow. Vow this wheel, this we we will, this wheel we even ween, we in the world would wove a low vow, fold, worn low at the hip, to be a solid soldier who soiled his sold soul for the chance to be the first to aim, first to fire, first to fly, in the crosshairs I am heir to know or to hold, I am on both sides of the gun. Toll is sound or cost, one that never ends and the other never returns. Any embrace is the first error in meaning's slope, wrought by thought that one could reach another, touch his shape known in two genders, like Orlando, whose tongue newly woke to pronounce any word for God or man means to enter violence's fold. No oath sworn to save, no salvation, no salve, no valor, no ovation, no nation. Thank you.
5: You describe in your poems a a kind of fact that existence is in this place between the physical and the transitory, And all human beings live in that space. But most human beings do not understand that the vortex... (laughs)
2: Um, that's a great question. Um, and I, I I mean like lovely insights. Um, and if I, if I could figure it out, I would tell you. (laughs)
5: Um,
2: but I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, there are lots of ways people try to do that. Um, contemplative practices, spiritual practices, religious practices. Um, and, and I think writing is one of those things too. Um, uh, I, I think a lot about, I think it was Frost, who says, uh, poems are a momentary stay against confusion. Um, and uh, I know I've spent most of my life very, very confused. And I think like the last couple of years more confused than ever. Um, and so uh, like the state that you're describing, uh, I would love to spend more time there, um, but maybe I only glimpse it if I actually sit down and do some, and write for a little while, and so that's one of the things that kind of keeps me going back to it, is it's a way to keep really that kind of understanding it's very hard to kind of actually work with every day Um, But in a kind of unfortunate way, where I live uh, is very prone to fire, and um, and threat is a kind of person that is unfortunate Two kids, two cats, and adopted into a 2006.
4: was once, and maybe on the map is still called Squaw Valley, but most locals don't use that name anymore. And it's a magical, very powerful, you know, um, place and the, the geology of those rocks, you know. And so I climbed up the mountain and there's a lake at the top. And of course, it's extremely dangerous to dive into those lakes because of how cold it is. But what did we know? And so I went into the lake and it was, I was really shocked for the rest of the day, and um, dizzy and dehydrated, and um, th- I just had these experiences, and I was writing down all the promises, um, the things that I did and didn't do. But in the poem, there, there, many, most of them are flipped. The things I said I did do are the things I didn't, of course, and the things I said I didn't do are the things I did. Um, but I'm not sure what else to tell you besides that. I mean, it was kind of a magic spell to try to go back um, and the place was claimed, you know, that there was an, an indigenous group that lived in that valley. And then K- Carson came and they, you know, that it was claimed and included in, in the, you know, in the empire. And so I was trying to negotiate with the rocks, like, how can I come back? You know, like, I want to come back really badly, but these rocks have seen it all, you know, cause they saw all of that. They were there, they witnessed and, so by staking no claim by releasing my desire I just had to hope that I would the rocks themselves would bring me back There you are that's the that's the poem I wanna add one thing about what we just talked about, which was like coming into the presence of the vortex and that idea of a momentary stay. I think the momentary is the important part because the poem is a gesture, but one can never really arrive. And the nature of space that we move through and the time that we experience um, are both you know, neither is space navigable, nor is time linear. Um, and we kind of know that a little bit now that these things are also connected and they can be the, you know, the signs of physics that shows us that the particles are entangled across both space and time and can, you know, be involved with each other in certain ways. So it puts me in the mind of that moment at the end of the film, The Matrix, where Neo sees the code for the first time when he looks down the hallway and all he sees are the numbers. So as my friend uh, po- and poet and wonderful thinker, Lyrae Van Cleef-Stefanon says, first he sees the matrix, then he flexes. You know, in that movie, Keanu sees it and then he just gets, he like, he just, there's this moment where he's supposed to fight the other guy and it's not really, a, he's not doing like a pose, he just kind of flexes. And it's this moment where he's like, okay, I've seen it, now I have to do something with it. And he can't keep, so the writing of the poem is the process of knowing and understanding and learning, but you can't ever arrive, because as soon as you fix uh, a place for yourself, then you've, you've lost the, the the knowledge, basically. So that's what I would say. <laughs>
2: Not as much as I should have, maybe. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I mean, I just want to say I love everything that you just said, and I want to like write that down and live by that now. Um, but you know, thinking about the gesture of the poem, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to keep something of their spokenness. Um, I mean, there was there's a lot of little small things like when you're speaking out loud, you kind of tend to string a lot of phrases together, so sometimes. Cutting down something that was unwieldy into two smaller sentences or things like that, um, and then, like I said, the deleting wholesale you know an idea that just fizzles out into me you know I still have the recordings where it's just you know self abuse for five minutes at the end of a half poem that didn't work or um, you know or said something stupid, and then it, you know just me ranting um, so it's a good uh, good way to perform self hatred too which is maybe a way of like getting it out like exer- exercising it um but, uh, but yeah, so it was mostly kind of just selection and then tightening um, some of the connective tissue. Uh, I guess first for Cousin, I mean,
1: uh, the museum where you at, were you at the Louvre, or? Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. I and was, but that, I mean, we happened to be there when this happened, but that particular exhibit was not happening there. That's the the fictional part. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I guess I didn't really understand pulse a lot, like the last one
2: at the end. I mean, I think I might be able to understand it better if I like look at it, right? But I could I get like your opinion on
4: that? Well, it's possible yes, It's possible that you would know more by looking at the words because there are a lot of punned words um, that (coughs) look different on the page and that's intentional. I mean that's part of the music of the poem, and there are some double meanings involved. So you have Pulse, and then you have the bump stock and the trigger. So I'm maybe calling your attention to the Pulse nightclub which is in Orlando, Florida. But the Orlando that I mention is the Orlando from Virginia Woolf's novel. Orlando who had two genders. You know, he woke, he was, he went to bed as a man and he woke up the next morning. He had some, he drank some kind of strong drink in Istanbul, of course. Virginia Woolf was like low key, you know, racist, had some issues. Um, so he drinks this drink and then he wakes up as a woman and then he goes back to England and he's, he, she is a woman, so. Um, and then my own identity as a queer muslim being on both sides of the gun in orlando because it was a muslim man who killed all of those people so those are a couple of keys that's all i care to tell you other than that you know i i'm not sure if that poem is published or not um but if it's ever published um you would be able to see the it will be public i mean who knows soon i hope but um you'll see you'll be able to read it better but um i hope that's i hope that's enough in to, to give you yeah yeah.
5: <laughs> uh, this is a question for both of you since Celine sort of answered my question in a way. I bring them into it. It's like you know, one of the things about about Patrick your work is that it's addressed to everybody, but not, not everybody. Uh In the contemporary world, we're so busy, maybe all the time, with existence, life, that uh, we don't have enough space for the contemporary world, which is the time that you need to enter into the vortex. So how, how do you approach a situation in which you are able to extract or distract people away from that into this other existence, with then, in a sense, that you could see about your existence and funnel it back into understanding your existence in this way. So, either you could, then that. That's, that's one of the key issues. In your case, writing brings you back to that. But it doesn't necessarily have to be writing. It's a way to think about what you've done, what existence is about. It's this way then it's not just busy this,
4: that from understanding. So, yeah. mm. Um I'm just going to start out by saying something really quickly, and then you know, go ahead. Um, but I, in practical terms, I think solitude and silence are both. Um, you know, for most people in the world, they're luxuries, and most people the, on the on the planet at the moment don't don't really have access to either of those two things. And our economic and political systems are constructed that way, actually, and so those of us who do have access to silence and solitude and space—you know, like uh, Virginia Woolf's room of one's own—like, I mean, all of that is this really dependent on economic resources. You know, if that's one of the arguments she was actually making in that book, too. She wasn't blind to that. So I think we have to think about that first and foremost. The other thing is that the life of literature and the life of poetry has always, from the very beginning, been engaged in the life of the community. Um, you know, the very first poems, at least the very first ones that we have, are all community, ritual, um, spiritual, um, and, you know, intimately connected to people's daily lives, wedding poems, funeral poems, et cetera. So the notion of the personal lyric, Brandon can say a lot more about this um, because he's teaching a class on this right now, but um, the notion of the personal lyric, the private lyric is... Uh, you know, pretty brand new and pretty reserved for a certain type of writers. Um, and so I guess that's what I would have to say about the, that question of contemplation as the access point or that that and ideal of, you know, spontaneous overflow of emotion, recollected in tranquility. You have the recollected, which means like you're looking back on something rather than living in the moment, and you have the tranquility, which is like um, a privilege, you know um based on based on economic access to that tranquility. So I think all of that has to be um questioned and thought about and interrogated and as far as the poets you know who are witnessing life and living in life and engaged in the life of their community is the writing a very different kind of poetry, I guess. So I have so much more to say about that, but I better stop.
2: Well, I want to hear. More. <laughs>
4: um I I agree completely
2: with it. Everything that Cosm says, um, and uh, would just—I would only add—having gone through long periods of time of not having access to solitude, um, despite being an incredibly, you know, privileged and fortunate person, um, that reading is another place. Like the, the the fortune of being here and getting to listen to Cosm read um, those poems and that story, I think those are, you know. Keeping a poem in your back pocket and being able to pull it out when you have three minutes and, you know, you can just kind of chipping away at creating those little spaces, I think, when you may not have access to community or you may not have access to longer periods to really sit with your own mind or, or your own writing um, can be really sustaining for me, anyways.
0: transcribing them onto the physical page, Um, were there any poems that surprised you in the form they took? Like, where the line breaks fell, or like how they took up or didn't take up the page? I'm just
2: really interested about that. It's a great question. Um, So I, I, actually, they're all uh, prose poems, um, which I um, played with breaking some of them, um, but uh, I really like, there's a Poet named Gary Young who talks about prose poems as a as a one line poem, and I really liked that idea, and and it felt kind of fitting for um, what I wanted, what I was interested in in doing. Um, But um, but no, I don't know. I think uh, um, you know. I think the surprise was more kind of in the moment of making them, where you 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 find an image or a phrase that you weren't expecting. or you're kind of able to say something that you wouldn't normally say in your everyday life, um, and so then transcribing them was kind of nice to refine them after they'd sat on the recorder for two years, um, and to know that the, that way of speaking or engaging with the world is still kind of possible. Well,
5: maybe another round.
4: I going to my books <laughs> that the authors